oh my God, man, I don't know if I could do it. I'm like, you can do it, man. You can do it, girl. You're the best. And then some part of them finds a superhuman strength in them to really achieve that impossible. And once they do, they come back to me and like, wow, we did it. We did the impossible. What's next? Hi, I'm Jenny. And I'm Harold. And this is You'll Manage. That burst of passion and energy you just heard is what empowering your team sounds like. That was our friend, Victor, who is the founder and CEO of a startup called Furbo. And on this episode, we'll be chatting with him and his co-founder and CMO, Maggie, about empowerment since being able to empower your direct reports is key to being an effective manager. On that note, Harold, when did you feel or not feel empowered in the past by your managers? There's like two ends of the spectrum of not being empowered. One is being extremely micromanaged. And I think this is why empowerment is so interesting because a lot of people, their pain point with their managers is micromanagement. And definitely, especially when I was working in agencies, dealing with clients, it just drained all the energy out of me because the clients would micromanage as every aspect of the work. And I just felt like I was doing menial labor for them. And then I think the other end of one is when you're thrown in the deep end and you don't feel like you have support. And I think at times Uber was growing so fast that that's what it felt like that um, they were like, hey, you and your policy colleague, go and figure out how to get regulations changed in Taiwan. Go. (laughs) And it was just so overwhelming and, and impossible. I think what you're saying is there has to be a right balance between giving you too much direction and giving you enough room to grow, right? If I think back about when I felt the most empowered was when my manager actually threw these crazy challenging projects at me, right? Like stuff that I've never done before, stuff that the company has never done before, um, but I had to go figure it out. But at the same time, I never felt I was alone in it because I kind of knew what the objectives were because he told me and, and we aligned on them together. And, you know, if I had questions or if I needed help to make a decision, we would have that discussion. He was available to me. And so as I think about how I want to manage my team, I want them to feel that same kind of empowerment I felt. And so I make it very deliberate to design these stretch projects and challenges for them. So they should never feel 100% comfortable that they're going to achieve this goal. They should feel, you know, maybe there's only 70% probability I'm able to achieve it. So they have the room to grow and really see um, what they're capable of. And not only do they grow, they're more likely to stay with the company and they're powering the company to, to new heights with their creativity, with what they're able to contribute. And I think that aspect is really important. We've both been in or are in startups or, or scale-ups. And a lot of people, especially from big corporations, will look to kind of smaller companies like startups and say, how do we get that creativity and innovations? And the thing is, big corporations don't lack creative people. What they lack is a culture of empowerment where those creative people can really bring their best work and contribute in a way that is is meaningful. Really, I think that's what we're going to dig into today. And we're going to speak with our friends, Vic and Maggie, who have their own startup. And we've watched them grow it from, from infancy to where they are today. And now it is the most successful pet camera in the world. It's really incredible. So we'd like to welcome Vic and Maggie. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hey, I'm Vic. I'm the CEO of Furbo. And I'm Maggie. I'm the CMO. We're a husband and wife co-founding team and very excited to be here. We want to interview you guys because we think that you guys probably face very unique challenges as both founders and um, would you guys say first time managers as well? 
Yeah, absolutely. Before becoming managers, we had no idea what we're going into. So I think in the beginning stages, it was just trying to invent a product, be an inventor. But as we scale, the challenges of being first-time managers definitely come along, you know, later on in our path. What was a moment for you that made you realize how important this is? Failing our first company, I guess Maggie and I actually started our first venture was called Life Crumbs. It was like a social app for your buddies. Anyways, not only was the product not taking off, but it was the people inside that I realized, man, I got to build a team and a product. It's not just a product anymore. I need to build a team, product, company. And so once we realized that after failing for the first time, you... <laughs> I get really self-reflective because failing is the best teacher. Once I failed, we knew that we need to get better as managers, as founders. So yeah, I picked up a book called Lean Startup. And one of the first lines that Eric Ries, the author, said was, uh, startup is management. And so that was so weird to me because as an entrepreneur, it's almost like you look at corporate managers and you feel like, ah, oh, that's not what I want to be. But as you go through it, you realize you got to be this way. You got to create some kind of structure and organization for people to really thrive in. Yeah. It's really interesting that you mentioned that book because I feel like I read that book so many times um, early on in my own startup career, but I actually don't remember mm. that phrase. And maybe because at that point I didn't understand management. So mm. it's very interesting how you can read all about management, but until you experience yourself, you can't connect those dots of what you read before on management. Yeah. And I guess that really jumped out at me because I was trying to figure out what parts I failed at as a leader. And for sure, management was one. So that was a lot of our focus. And we just, we were very forgiving. I think Maggie was very supportive. And one of the most important aspects of management, I think, that she does wonderful at is sympathy. You got to have sympathy and humility because you are working with people at the end of the day, right? So you got to have empathy and understand, you know, where they're coming from and what's their desire and passion. Because once you can align their passion with meaningful work, that's where it flourishes. Yeah, I think for a lot of first time manager, a lot of times it's easier to just tell you what to do. And, you know, they follow exactly A, B, C, you know, the steps that your manager is telling you to do so. But I think especially in an organization where we value creativity and collaboration, it's more important for managers to show them the future, the, the vision of where we're headed or where what it can be. And then for the rest of how to get there, if the individual that you hire, they're smart enough and they're curious enough, they'll find their own path to get there. You know, even people who are older than us would struggle with, you know, as they make the transition from a corporate world to a more startup environment, how to let their people, you know, kind of charge their own path as long as we have an aligned objective of what we want to achieve. A lot of quote-unquote seasoned managers that would join the team, as they progress, you realize how little management training they've had in, in the past, in their previous companies. They're kind of thrown into the role and they just kind of learn at the job. A lot of things they carry from their previous job or experiences, but many things we are actually trying to get them to unlearn as they join the team. So what would be some of those management frameworks and concepts that you think are very helpful? And then what addresses the things that the so-called seasoned managers that you guys have come across, what they had to unlearn? I would say management, especially during the founding years and startup, is way different than now. And 
in the beginning, I would say it was kind of like we're building a plane and try to build the plane while we jumped off the cliff. And, and, and it's more of managing chaos than managing people, right? So once we got to a point where we're seeing a little bit more success and uh, more talent are willing to join, it's more about not managing people or chaos, but more of managing the vision of where we're going. Where's the overall direction? And can everyone pull their weight to see that direction? So a lot of times that we're spending is actually setting objective and key results for our managers. So a very important framework, I would say, is objective key results. Uh, OKR It's a framework that we adopted from Silicon Valley, where it's a very collaborative, democratic way of setting your own objectives. And once you set your own objectives, you work with the team to kind of figure out what are the key results that uh, we need to get there. So for example, if I use a very personal one, it'd be more like my personal OKR this year was to lose like 10 kg. All right. So the, the objective is to get healthier. And the key result, you need numbers is like lose 10 kg. That's the first step of where to go. And the how to go is the strategy. This is where you really collaborate with the team. How do you go and lose 10 kg? And you list out options of keto diet or eat only plant meat. What we're saying is the strategy part is the very collaborative part that the team comes and rallies around. But as a manager and leader, we first need to set the objective and key result and create an environment where everyone feels open and sharing. And then you guys get the most out of everybody to find the right strategy forward. What was the most unexpected thing about management in those early days? Almost everything. And I know that's so general, but I was maybe just 23-year-old CEO for the first time, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was completely out of my element. And uh, to be honest, in the beginning, I just thought, we'll just all work like a team and everyone do your best and work off passion. As I get wiser throughout the years, management is a very efficient tool and framework to let the team move forward in the aligned vision. You can have as many smart people as you want in a room, but without management, they, they can't get things done. Yeah. And management and I would say culture and our values. Values to us are what's the DNA of this company. So it's a mixture of management and culture. What are some other ways that you build a culture? Because I think that's a very tough job. I think there are actually three steps for to advocate for culture. First, you got to define it. And every vision and culture is unique to the organization. The vision and values that we've set up for ourselves do not apply to a, say, 100-year-old company that's a factory, right? So we've got to find the unique attributes that defines our company first. Second is, I think it starts from the leadership team to advocate it. Maggie and I really take a lot of... Uh effort and burden on culture. And now that I've grown my executive team, they're also un understanding that they have to be part of the culture spreading. They can't just be followers and read off the wall of values. They got to say it. They got to be, be about it. They have to actively be able to talk about it amongst themselves and with the team below them. So it's something that people are used to hearing. And then finally, put it into everyday actions. It's harder than it sounds to get your teammates to be about the culture. To really get them to be about it, we have to let them see how this translates into decision making, right? So everyday decision making. So my two values that I really like is open-mindedness and explore, right? 
So in terms of how that relates to our decision making is that first, when you come into the room and you got a room full of very smart people, but diverse, you got to be open minded, right? Like their opinion matters, right? We got to listen. We got to take it in. That's one of the values that they really have to practice, which is listening and uh, really uh, respecting each other's thoughts. But second one is explore, right? Entrepreneurs hate the word impossible, right? We just find a hundred ways and one way to get through that impossible wall. We found it. So to me, with that same spirit, I want with the team to know that nothing's impossible here. You just haven't explored all options. So once they realize that, okay, let's see what option A is, option B, C, D, E, F. If you're in a room full of smart people and you put all the options on the table for a group of people, you don't need the seal to jump in and make a decision for anyone. Because what happens is that the answer slowly simmers. It comes up because everyone's talking. You're engaged in a really smart, open-minded environment where you explored all options and then reach your conclusion. So it's not just words, but these values have to have action into decision-making every day. So you're saying you give your team a sense of exploration simply by mapping out kind of the vast options that you have in front of you. Yeah. So they have to really live and breathe it on mm-hmm. and, and on every day, you know, frequency for mm-hmm. them to, you know, remember this is how how we do things. And, and there is a challenge to that because before I would just say, hey, that's the way to do it, right? Explore all options and people go into meetings and they don't do it. So then we developed something in this past year called one, two, three strategy. Okay. When you go into a good discussion, this is how you run a perfect discussion. One, two, three strategy. Step one, what's the objective you guys are trying to trying to achieve, right? Where are you going? First, let us know where the direction is. Step two is called listing the facts. Where are we now? So I forced my team to list 15 facts about the current situation, anything. And what happens is everyone could contribute because there's like people from finance or uh, or marketing or product team, they all have blind sides, right? So it's important for everyone to just list out 15 facts. And it's a really fun collaborative uh, moment because there's no wrong answers, right? And then it gets to the hard part, which is step number three. List out five options to get there, right? Your final destination. Are you going to go by bike? Are you going to go by train? Are you going to go by car? Let us know what your budget is, right? So there's different ways to go about it. But we've consistently seen our managers use one, two, three strategy as a framework for every meeting. They come out with a collaborative team. They all know exactly where they're going. No facts are lost. Uh, It's been a really eye-opening experience for us this past year. Can you think of a specific example of when you saw something that wasn't culturally aligned and you had to act to respond to it? It's hard to maintain a culture. So we try to use as much frameworks as possible when I see something wrong. So that's why I came up with the one, two, three strategy. What is really frustrating as a manager is when somebody has a problem and they run up to the manager and says, hey, I got a problem. And this is the one solution that I'm going to provide for you. Yes or no. That's like the worst decision making possible. First of all, what the hell are you talking about? What's the facts? Where are you coming from? Right. Second of all, what's your objective? What are you trying to achieve? So I realized my job was getting harder because everyone just didn't know this framework. So they were just running to me to get an answer. Right. And I would just then push them back and say, you got to give me a few more options. So what we realized is that 
when people just run and react to a problem and only give you one solution, and then you make the decision yes or no, most likely the outcome is not going to be very good, right? So I was seeing a lot of these bad decisions being made, I guess. I can't specifically say which ones, but usually without enough exploration of options and talking to your user, the answer you probably thought it was right, it was probably wrong, yeah. Yeah, I say the one, two, three strategy is our management playbook. And we came to it finally because of all the hurdles and obstacles we've had along the way. Exactly like how Vic put it, people used to come to us with every event and ask us to say just yes or no on the one option they had. We used to push back and just say, you know, give me more options until it got to a point that we realized there's a better way. There's a more collaborative way that allows everybody to be on the same page. It's totally different now. So before they ran to us with the problem and they say yes or no, right? And I, I need to give them an answer. Now they know that one, two, three strategy from framework. So they get in a small group themselves. And then that manager then comes to me and say, hey, we ran a full one, two, three strategy. This is all the facts. This is where we're going. This is the one I suggest. What's you and Maggie's feedback? Then we're able to be like, okay, you're maybe this option. Did you forget about this option? So then it really lets them reflect and understand where they're going. And they're, it, it makes my life way, way easier. And I could give way better feedback. So it makes your life easier, results in better decisions. And it sounds like I'm, I'm guessing that the teams are, are enjoying their lives more because they are empowered to explore. They're empowered to go through these processes where they, they feel like they have ownership over the decision rather than they go to you and you give them a no and oh, yeah. then they just have to go back to the drawing yeah. board. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There is much more mind share when we run the one, two, three strategy as a group. Um, a lot of times during checkouts, you hear people say, wow, that process, I can't believe how it came about. I had this problem in the back of my mind for the longest time. I didn't want to vocalize it. I didn't know all these people shared that same struggle, but the framework allowed them to put it all on the table and think of creative solutions. And at the end, they have clarity. They're more motivated to work towards the collective goal. So, yeah. I think this is a great example of how, as managers, you guys introduced a framework that made the organization more efficient. Um, so I guess it's like more of a group framework. Personally, I think one of the more difficult things about being a manager is having one-on-one -on -one conversations with your direct reports. Do you guys have a framework or method or tips for having these conversations to give constructive feedback to, let's say, a mediocre performer without discouraging them, um, but encouraging them so they want to improve. Mediocre or like potentially good? Let's just say <laughs> someone who you have reason to think that has potential and you want to invest in them. How do you actually put the investment into action? So that's great. There's a star and in between mediocre and star is something we call emerging star, right? So these guys, we want, we actually want to spend 70% of our management time on these emerging stars because these guys are potential. They're eager to learn. Okay. And you don't want to spend too much time on your stars. You spend maybe 10% because they just want a direction to go and they need to be challenged. Those are the most important things about stars. They need to have new challenges. Otherwise, they get bored with their work. So that's not too much of your time you should spend. So just 70 and 10%, that's already 80% of your management time on your two 
groups of best people. So if you ask me, you only got 20% for the mediocre people. And I'll tell you, you can put 100% of your time on mediocre people. It's going to be tough, man. Are you going to make the worst player on your five-man basketball team suddenly a star? You can do that all year. It's not going to happen sometimes, right? So it's best as a coach, as a manager, say, hey, my star player, Michael Jordan, needs you know, the ball, but these other two players who are getting really good, I want to develop them. I want to know how they play with our star player and how they can uplift our whole team. So that's kind of the more of our mentality. Mediocre people don't need to spend that much time, but if you want to talk to them, I'd rather you correct their problems and, and give them straight feedback. But for emerging stars, let me come back to them. I think it's really great to give a lot of your time to them. I think encouragement is the most important thing giving them uh, something they're good at so they get small wins first, and then you build it up bigger challenges. I love giving huge challenges and encourage them. Like, I'm not the type that gives huge challenge, and when they they fail, I, I yell at them. I'm more like, let's do this huge challenge. Like, oh my God, man, I don't know if I could do it. I'm like, you can do it, man. You can do it, girl. You're the best. And then some part of them finds a superhuman strength in them to really achieve that impossible. And once they do, they come back to me and like, wow, we did it. We did the impossible. What's next? It, they almost get addicted to it. And that's the type of people that we want to invest the most time in. That example you gave in the way you spoke about it, you, you seemed very passionate and almost proud. So what were some moments where you were like, oh, wow, I love this part about being a manager or it, it was like a very special moment? For me, I don't think there is this one moment that everybody goes, aha, now I got it. I am a manager now. But for me, it is it is designing challenges for team members and coaching them along the way to, to help them reach their potential. So for example, I had a marketing manager who has never you know, touched a China market before. And her goal was to launch in the China market. So she came in with very little understanding. And for the next six months, we work closely together. You know, we validated together. We talked to partners together and we strategize our go-to-market plan together to finally, the day after she we launched in that market, she can sit back and look at all the things she, we accomplished together. That moment, she said, when I heard you give me that project, I thought you were crazy. There is no way. But looking at how we got, you know, we spent so much time in brainstorming and strategizing along the way to finally achieve it. Like, wow, I, I think we're doing it. I think we can do it. What is next? You know, they are empowered and they're excited for the next challenge, the next mountain to climb. And I think that is a, a great accomplishment for any manager to have to be able to empower their people to achieve the impossible. And to add to that, she came out that just loving Maggie as a manager because that experience for her, she was so worried. You know what I'm saying? She just thought it was impossible. So what I thought Maggie did as the best manager that she could do was that she showed her that this is a crazy goal, but I'm going to get in there with you. I'm going to get in there with you because most managers just give you a crazy goal and leave it to you and like you didn't hit it. Bad job. Maggie actually jumped in there and did all the work with them and to get them to that moment where they did launch she was just so proud and emotional that her manager actually spent all that time with her 
to build it up. So again, their relationship is so good because now they have that kind of, they fought that war together. And so when you come out of that war and you see that you achieve the impossible, man, you just get addicted to it. You want to achieve the next impossible thing. Yeah. So I think it is up to the manager to kind of design a challenge for them, a challenge that's big enough that they they are a little nervous. And I think being nervous is actually great for their performance, but not so impossible that you're setting them up to fail. So striking that balance, it's a manager's job to, to you know, oversee. Can you think of an example of where empowerment went wrong? You gave someone too much autonomy or you gave them power over a decision that went the way that totally didn't work out for you. Is there an example of that? I think so. Yeah, there would be times when, say, someone thinks they completely own this project, so I'm just going to go all the way. And a lot of times they don't realize, right? Part of the difference of being an individual contributor versus a um, contributing team member is they need to share things. They need to be proactive about telling you, here's my plan and ask for feedback proactively. So they might have gone ahead and spent that budget. I wouldn't have spent it that way. I wish we had a chance to talk about it before we pour all the money into this channel that didn't perform well. And I think at the end of the day, you just let them reflect on the decision. And a smart a smart individual will be able to look back at it and be like, okay, that was the, the point where we should have sat down together and look at our options. And, and, you know, as manager know that it's okay. It's okay that they make mistakes as long as they have the ability to be self-aware, to be reflective and not make the same mistake again. So it's more important to you to err on a side of empowerment and then suffer as an organization, perhaps, that someone made a mistake rather than trying to prevent this kind of overstepping from happening. But it's also on me as a manager, right? to have set that objective very clearly. Which direction are we going? Which strategy are we going to do? Now, empowerment isn't, hey, go do it and let me know how you do in three months. That's not really empowerment. In fact, that's just sending someone to do an errand. I think the most important <laughs> is that you're in there with them. You're, you're figuring it out. The most empowerment that girl got was that her CMO jumped in with her to, to just go through this chaos and come out of it achieving, right? And I think that's the true empowerment, not so much as like just pointing that direction, but really jumping in there. And if they fail, this is the most important, if they fail, you got to let them know it's okay. That is empowerment. Trust is when you fail and I got your back. That's what I think is trust in at least our company. So it's, it's important for us. How I said earlier, it's important to kind of design the challenge you want to set up your individuals for. I think it's also the manager's job to let the individual take calculated risks. You as the manager should be able to see 10 steps ahead when your report sees three. So, and you let them, you you let them make their own decisions, even though you might have a different idea. And I think it's a better way to learn than just telling them exactly what to do. As you guys were scaling your company, I'm sure you ran into a lot of challenges and obstacles. On the management side, what would you guys say were the hardest things about management for you personally? Is it, I mean, you mentioned being empathetic, sympathetic. Is that, was that really, really tough for you? Is it about delegating work? Is it about hiring the right people? The first thing that comes to my mind is definitely hiring the right people. I mean, you only feel 
the pain once you hire the wrong person. And this guy's not proactive. He's not doing all the right stuff in culture. You only feel it. So I've been burned a couple of times now. So Maggie and I are very, very careful when we hire. So because we've been burned, we almost have like a four-step, very thorough interview process, which get, allows uh, any of our team leaders or executives to interview them. And then if one of them vetoes, they're out. So it's a very rigorous interview process. So we evaluate candidates with two criteria, actually quite simple. It's fit and fitness. Fitness is how strong we think they are at the job that they need to perform. So, it'll, you know, we'll account for their previous experiences in relevant fields and, you know, the job that they're about to go into. But the more interesting one is the fit. So that equates to cultural fit. So we mentioned before, do they have alignment with our vision and our four values? We really think about this person coming in. Are they open-minded enough? Do they explore options before they execute something? Are they agile? Because in a startup environment, every day is different and they need to adapt to changes quickly. And also, are they fun? You know, because we think when you're having fun, that's when you're most creative. So we really do look into if this person have cultural fit before um, we take someone on board. And I'm curious, you, you talked about cultural fit being an important aspect of hiring. Do you also use it in your performance reviews? Yes, absolutely. So exactly how we evaluate um, candidates coming in, we evaluate candidates' um, employees' performance on a quarterly basis with the same with the same guidelines. You know, have they hit their OKR? If not, what are some challenges that they face on the job, right? But also the second part is the soft skills. Have they contributed culturally to the organization? You know, and a lot of times they, it's not something that they're conscious about. I think most people are happy to follow along, but to be actively contribute to the culture, it's the next level. Have you had cases where someone is performing very well on an OKR basis, but they're falling short on culture? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Honestly, and that's just a that's a great question because that that's just starting now. My my team leaders, my executives are super capable, right? It's very, very capable, but they haven't learned how to spread the cultural mantra to everyone. I've definitely had a really strong performer with terrible culture. That is poison. That's what we call poison. You don't realize you're poisoning the well, but day by day, that division was kind of rotting. They were just not happy. And when I went down to investigate and learn more and talking to these people, they told me it's like this style is too top down. And I was shocked of this director. And I'm, I'm shocked because me and Maggie are not top down people. This whole episode, we're talking about how we want to empower people like a bottom up type of thing. This guy wasn't adopting our culture enough, right? And so he didn't bring it into his team. And then his team was complaining that he's too top down. After whatever, he left. He couldn't take it anymore. So then the other managers were like, whoa, <laughs> what Vic and Maggie, those frameworks they teach, that those really work. See what happens when you <laughs> don't use it, right? So 
Then they start picking it up and we use every pain as a way to just keep improving our system. And I think that was one of the ways. Startup is already a very tough place to survive. You got to be the best of the best if you want to survive. And not just the brightest, but the most cultural fit. Yeah, I totally agree. Cultural fit is very important. And today we learned how you guys use your culture to build Furbo into a very successful company. Um, so before we wrap up, why don't you tell us a bit more about Furbo and how it came to be. Furbo is a dog camera that lets you see, talk, and toss trees to your pets. And this idea originated from uh, Maggie and I had a problem where our baby, our dog, Gobi, he's a nine-year-old toy poodle. Whenever we leave the house, he would give us the saddest puppy eye. I mean, it would just break our hearts. And so when we saw that, we realized, does everyone have that problem, right? So we started asking our friends, and we realized that a lot of people have this problem because they start treating their, their dogs like a baby. And from that problem, it emerged and we realized that uh, the best way to help them solve the problem is to invent a Furbo dog camera. And now Furbo is the number one pet camera on Amazon. So everyone, go check it out. Thank you, you two, so much for being here on our second episode. It's pretty amazing how you and I have known Vic and Maggie for, I think, more than 15 years now. And it's so exciting to watch them build their successful startup from scratch. And it's a whole other thing to actually hear from them on how they did it. Yeah, I, I think it's really gratifying to me to hear this real world example of how empowerment isn't just some sort of feel good concept um, designed to make your team happy. It's the fuel that powers successful startups. It enables them to be creative and innovative and explore new and novel solutions to problems. So our listeners, as a manager, how do you embed that culture of empowerment into your organization, big or small? Let's recap the top three tips. First, you can't empower people if you don't have a clear vision and clear objectives. You have to define really clearly where you're headed before you can empower people to decide for themselves how to get there. OKRs are one framework for making goals crisp and precise. Second, empower your team members with challenges designed to stretch them, particularly those you consider emerging stars. Having autonomy to do easy work doesn't feel empowering at all. Make sure you can give them responsibility outside of their comfort zone. Um, and that shows that you believe in them. Give them a sense of growth and achievement, and that will bring out the best in them. Um, make sure to give them a clear direction and vision, give them the resources they need, and then give them autonomy. And of course, autonomy doesn't mean abandonment. You also have to be there with them, whether as a coach, as a cheerleader, or as a sounding board, and make sure to catch them when they stumble. Third, building a culture of empowerment or any type of culture at all requires far more than posters on a wall or catchphrases. It needs to be embedded in everyone's day-to-day -day work and decision-making in concrete ways that everyone can see, apply, and hold each other accountable to. Vicky Maggie's 123 framework is one clear way that they empower people on their teams to explore and make informed decisions collectively and autonomously. Think about what culture you want to foster and what specific day-to-day -day frameworks you can implement to bring it about. And with all that, we hope this episode helped you feel more empowered in your management journey. And in the spirit of being good coaches, we're here to help you in that journey. So we'd love to hear how we can help seek out answers to your management questions and challenges. 
Send us your experiences, stories, successes, failures, anything at all at feedback at yourmanage.com. Thank you for tuning in. As always, please subscribe and give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so all those emerging star managers out there can discover You'll Manage as well. Until next time, we're here to reassure you, You'll You'll manage. Manage. Still listening? Here's an outtake from this episode. Um, as young, I know we're all sweating. Um, as, as, as young, sweaty um, founders um, and young managers.